The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. This Valentine's Day, Dunkin's got the perfect pairings to show your love. So get down on one knee with a dozen brownie batter donuts and a cocoa mocha signature latte. Or make them swoon with a strawberry dragon fruit Dunkin' refresher with a Cupid's Choice Donut. Are you ready for love? America runs on Dunkin'. Price and participation may vary. Limited time offer. The advice and opinions expressed by the host of Autism Live and her guests are meant solely as suggestion and should not be in any way construed as child-specific advice. Any choices you make in determining your child's treatment are completely at your own discretion. Dr. Doreen Grand-Pichet is the... Dr. Doreen is an expert in autism. Doreen grand Dr. Grand-Pichet. Dr. Doreen grand Dr. Doreen grand is a visionary in the field of autism. Now you can ask her questions on Ask Dr. Doreen. Good morning and welcome to Ask Dr. Doreen. Good morning. Good morning, everyone. <laughs> I'm Shannon Penrod. And I'm here with the lovely and fabulous and brilliant Dr. Doreen Grampichet. We're going to be with you for the next hour talking about all the things that you guys want to talk about. We specifically put a topic out last week and did a very special show mm -hmm. from us to you about uh, what we believe the difference is between good ABA and bad ABA and how you might recognize it from the point of view of the preeminent expert in the field of autism and from a parent. Um, so hopefully you guys found that interesting. You wrote in some questions last week that we promised that we would answer, and then we are going to take live questions as well. But we, we, this is a topic that we're going to continue to talk about, it, the difference between, because I don't think that just saying ABA anymore really works, Dr. Right, Grampiche. Right, right. Um, so I, so we're going we're gonna to be talking about that more. I do want to say a couple of things as we get started. If you've never watched Ask Dr. Doreen before, where you been? First of all, like we've been doing this now for 10 years, almost 11. So we're glad that you guys are here. Dr. Grampiche is a true expert in the field of autism. She's been working in this field for 40 plus years. That's crazy. Um, <laughs> that anybody could look as good as you do and be do have done anything for 40 plus years Lord. is remarkable. Um, so kudos to you on that. But also, what a wealth of experience she has. And, and for those of you who are curious, she has spent her life, devoted her life to working with individuals on the spectrum, regardless of age, regardless of ability, has a full range of experience from babies up through senior citizens, every single level, and has trained many of the really good clinicians that are out there fighting the good fight to do good ABA. And what I... As if all of that wasn't enough, what I love most about you is, I see I'm going to get all welled up here, um, she is a true fighter for individuals on the spectrum and the people who love them and, and fighting for their rights as individuals and to be seen as individuals and be, be treated with respect and empathy and kindness. Um, thank God for you. Thank you so much. You're too kind. You no. Won't, you embarrass me. <laughs> no, 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 no. But anyway, so she's here. She donates this hour to answer your questions in real time. The chat is open right now. 
We're live right now on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, and about a dozen other sites. Uh, Traven is showing them to you right there. I just saw, that, you know, Dr. Doreen is on Instagram. There's a sentence I never thought I would say. Yeah. And on TikTok. TikTok. How's that? <laughs> yeah, everywhere. Yeah. You are hip. You are chic. You are <laughs> with the whole thing. Uh, she's making it happen. So uh, lots of different ways to reach out to her. And you guys are already writing in your questions, which is wonderful. And I do have a passel of comments and questions from last week. I don't want to get too far behind in the, the chat here, though. So I'm going to start with somebody, something that somebody wrote in here. Honey says, hi there. Can you give me tips to teach my son proper past tense words? I did some activities with him, but he doesn't uh, put, put the, the words, words properly. Um, and that's... You know, I mean, this comes right back to good ABA because this is something that you absolutely can teach using proper, good ABA techniques. Yeah, yes, definitely. And these are the, uh, you know, it, it's also a really good example of how uh, everything we teach happens in a particular order. And if you kind of skip the order or just try to throw things at the child that are not, a, not you know, the prerequisites are not there, um, it's going to be very confusing. So um, past tense, you first of all want to make sure that your child is really good with present tense. Yeah. And the way that we teach past tense is that we will first start with, you know, when we teach action, or um, tense has to do with actions or verbs, right? So when we teach anything having to do with actions, we first start with, uh, just identifying what we call 3D, which is live. So what am I doing? What am I doing? You know, what am I doing? That sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And then we want to make sure that the child is also really good at identifying actions with, on pictures. What is she doing? What is he doing? And you really want to get to a point where the child doesn't make mistakes here because once you start going into past tense, it starts to cause some confusion, right? And then once you have all of that mastered, you'll then start to do, what am I doing? And then what did I do after you're finished? And if you're using two-dimensional like pictures, you'll say, what is he doing? And then you put it behind and say, what did he do? And listen, it's all prompted in the beginning. So yeah. you will give the child the appropriate answer, right? And then it, when you're doing it live, what am I doing? You are clapping. What did I do? You clapped. Mm -hmm. And uh, there are lots of different prompts you can use. I mean, you will model their response like anything else, but you can also use visual prompts. A lot of children are very good at um, sight reading. So when you uh, show them a word, they will learn what that word is, even though they can't read or, or phonetically sound out. But, and it acts as a prompt. So that's another way to do it. Um, another prompt that helps, or another way to make this whole process easier um, or clearer, let's put it that way, is uh, to use objects that actually physically change. Like for instance, a glass, and what am I drinking? What am I doing? You are drinking, and when it's empty, it's a prompt for the child to say, you drank, right? Mm -hmm. so, there are objects where the physical form of the object changes. Um, so this is one of the lessons in the language curriculum that we wrote in skills. And fingers crossed, right now I believe skills is accessible to the public. Yeah. 
And if you go online and look for skills for autism, you'll be able to find all of these um, written out in great detail and hopefully it will help you. Yeah, when we started therapy, we, you know, the question while we were waiting to start, because, you know, it takes a while to staff your team, we asked what should we be doing and we got a list of things that we should have in the house and one of them was a camera. Now, what's great is we all have smartphones now and everybody yeah. has a camera on their phone. Yeah. And I suggest that you sign up for one of those services at, at CVS or Walmart or wherever where you can go from your phone and do one-hour photo. Boy, the people at Walmart knew me well because we were constantly taking pictures of things and, as and he was now, adding language. And now you can just print them off your phone, right? So that's easy enough to print them. Yeah, for some of us, that would not be easy. Okay. Maybe for you, I don't know how to, there's a way to print off my phone? Forget it. That, <laughs> I, can't, I can't even email a picture off my phone, so don't talk crazy to me. Okay. But, but you can one-hour photo, and then you swing by and pick them up at CVS. For yeah. me, that's just as easy, and it's pennies. But um, there was, I remember when we were starting to teach actions, uh, and I had been given by our team, you know, here we want pictures. There was a whole list of things we wanted pictures of. And the reason why I remember it was because it was a terrible day when my best friend called, and she was just diagnosed with cancer. Oh. Young mom with three boys, oh. uh, you know, one of them not even in school yet, and it was hysteria, right? And I said, uh, you know, I'm coming over right now. And my friend and her husband had to, like, you know, be on the phone with doctors and be coming up with a whole plan. So I had my son and the three boys. And all I had, because I had no prior notice, I had grabbed, it was in October, and I had a, um, uh, a gingerbread house kit that oh, was yeah. sitting there. So I grabbed that and said, you know, because I have to occupy these kids and they can hear their mother screaming and crying in the other room. So we, the, you know, the four little boys, we put together the the gingerbread haunted house, and, and then I said, hey, you know, I, I, we have to do something. And I said, let's play a game. We're gonna, I'm going to say an action, and then you guys do it, and I'm going to take a picture of exactly. it. And we turned it into a game, and I just found those pictures the other day, and they're so poignant to me because my son literally learned how to speak from these pictures, yeah. but there is a memory that is, you know, she's fine now, yeah. it's bittersweet, but it, we had a ball doing it. Yeah. And because my son had the memory of the boys all taking the pictures and doing it, I feel like he learned that much faster. So I encourage people, involve your children, take the pictures. We, you know, as horrible as that night was, it is a good memory of that. Absolutely. That's, I'm, that's a great story. I love that story. But I, I have to say, like, you can take pictures any way of your child doing various things throughout the day. Those pictures become useful Ugh. in so many ways, not yeah. just for tenses, but like I, I often tell parents to take pictures of stages of getting the child ready and put them on a wall yeah. so the child knows the order of getting ready, the order of brushing your teeth, the order of whatever it is. Those pictures are very, very helpful. And yeah, you can use them for tenses as well. Yeah, oh, we took all the pictures of each stage, We, you know, we took a picture of his bare feet, then we put, took a picture of one sock exactly. on, then the second sock exactly. on, and then, then the shoes on, and then the shoes tied. Exactly. And, oh, those are good memories, you guys. <laughs> okay, uh, what could be, Dr. Nagpal says, what could be the reason that the child typically mouths everything at home but not at the clinic, specifically when left alone or idle? Uh, well, it depends, I guess, on what is happening when the child uh, mouths everything, right? So uh, the likelihood when it's happening only at home and not at a center-based clinic, 
the likelihood is that there's a different consequence when it occurs at home. And uh, so, you know, it's possible that when your child does that, you uh, immediately run to the child and try to stop them or interact with them somehow. Whereas at the clinic, that attention was not given to it. Yeah. Um, I think what you need to do is have a discussion with the VCBA who's overseeing your program at the, at the center and figure out exactly what they've done to deal with it if it ever occurred. And if it did not ever occur, then have them come to the home and observe it and give you feedback on how to ha handle it. Things can have a different function, so I don't want to give you feedback on it right now because I'm not able to see exactly what happens before and after in each environment. So that's really important. But whenever a child starts to mouth things and like excessively, let's say, puts them in his mouth or licks or that sort of thing, then I also want to recommend that you get uh, just a urine test your child's old enough and can handle it, maybe a blood test. You want to make sure there's no specific deficiency. Mm. Uh, we used to have a lot of kids, like years ago, there was this phase where I had kids that were just like licking the walls. And I finally spoke to a physician about it and they were like, that could be a calcium deficiency. Let's mm. look into it. So uh, it's important, I think, that when it, something like that happens, you should also check and make sure there's no deficiencies. There we go. Uh, good morning to Susie. Good morning to so many people. Kirsten, so thrilled that you're here with us. I saw your message yesterday. I definitely want to catch up. Um, Ikra wants to know, what about the treatment of restricted patterns and stereotypic moments of the person with autism? Mm. This goes right to the heart, I think, of the difference between good ABA and schlocky ABA. That's uh, true. Well, I mean, and I think it's just a very, very good question. Ikra. Yes. Thanks for asking this question because a lot of times... Um, those behaviors that are what we call restricted, restrictive patterns of behavior, stereotypical patterns of behavior, we refer to them in ABA as stereotypy. Most people call them self-stimulatory behaviors. These are a series of behaviors where I don't think there has been a good enough identification of what their function is. So I'll talk about them a little bit. First of all, we're talking about things that are a little bit repetitive. So for example, it could be anything from uh, looking at ceiling fans that are turning, uh, staring at lights, opening and closing doors, lining your uh, toys up in a line, uh, body rocking, uh, looking at your hands like this, uh, you know, playing with water or sand repeatedly. I mean, there's a lot of them, and as you can see, Everything I named, they're, so, they're different in the way they look, right? Their topography is quite different. So um, it, as a behaviorist, what you do is you say, okay, I wonder what the function of this is. Why is this behavior occurring? Because even if I don't give it any attention, if it doesn't gain any uh, access to an object or a tangible or to escape or whatever, it still continues, right? Yeah. So what is the function of it? And behaviorists have concluded that they want to put this whole category in a group called internal or intrinsic reinforcement. In other words, there's got to be some sort of internal reward that's coming from this behavior. It's, we, can't, we don't know what it is because it's not something that is obvious in the environment. 
there's some sort of intrinsic reward that's coming from it, reinforcer, right? Now, to me, that's a little bit too broad. And I think that these self-stimulatory behaviors occur for different reasons. Mm -hmm. I think some of them are occur f as a result of pain. Um, mm -hmm. I've seen, you know, there was a phase where I used to work a lot with gastroenterologists, and I learned and I saw like tons of videos of uh, teenagers who had very, very distended, bloated bellies, and they would put uh, pressure on their belly, and they would body rock against a couch, against mm -hmm. a countertop, against something like that. Now, if you don't know what's going on with them, and you look at that behavior, it's just, it's another self-stimulatory body rocking type thing. But right. to me, that looked like what I would do if, if my stomach hurt, you know, yeah. I'd be doing something like that. So that's one series. Another one is basically, um, you know, this motion of body rocking activates the uh, parasympathetic portion of the autonomic nervous system. And what it does is it calms you. Yeah. So I always find it funny that we call these things self-stimulatory. Sometimes I wonder if we should call them self-soothing behaviors, yeah. right? Because it's the same thing as a rocking chair. That's in fact, why we have rocking chairs, because this motion is, yeah. is soothing. So sometimes I wonder if children have learned or adults have learned that this type of thing is soothing. Then there's the whole process of all of the visual self-stimulatory behaviors, which to me are a, uh, have more to do with what Tem Dr. Temple Grandin often talks mm -hmm. about, which is the way we see things mm -hmm. and that, you know, things are seen in pictures or in boxes and so on. And sometimes our kids are doing things with their eyes, like if they're looking from the mm -hmm. corner, I think they're trying to use either the rods or the cones differently in the back of their retina mm -hmm. because... You know, when you look from the corner, you actually see better in darkness, mm. right? So, for instance, that could be one of the things that they're doing. There's no question in my mind that there, it plays a function because there's so many different children doing this, right? And then, of course, there's other sensory types of things, you know, as we know now, yeah. when you're playing with water or sand, uh, it helps to regulate your sensory input. So I know that you know, I, I just named a few of these things, but mm -hmm. I really believe that the self-stimulatory behaviors, these repetitive behaviors, have different functions, right? Yeah. And it's super hard to identify what the actual function is for each child. Mm -hmm. How do you deal with them? That was the question, is what do you do with them? From my perspective, if you are trying to teach something and a self-stimulatory ritualistic behavior gets in the way of that, then I would break the pattern. I would actually try to, uh, during that learning opportunity, prevent the child from doing it, and I would teach them and reward them. Mm -hmm. But I would give the child a private period of time to have that as a reward. It's kind of yeah. like anyone, you know, uh, for my son, uh, a reward would be, you know, l listening to music, let's mm -hmm. say. For me, a reward would be reading. And we have different types of things that we do, yeah. uh, which are calming, soothing. A lot of people will get on a rocking chair and knit. Like, yeah. you know, so there's different things. So I think that it would be appropriate to limit the time that we engage in those behaviors, but allow them. 
Because if you don't allow them, I've often found that some other type of self-symmetry thing will kind of come into the child's universe. And if you allow them all the time, it, it takes away from the child observing their environment. It's kind of like if you allow a child to have an iPad all the time, or any of us, right? I right. mean, sometimes I tell my husband, I'm like, put your phone away. We're going to yeah. spend 10 minutes just talking because yeah. all we're doing is this, right? right. And so it's kind of like, you know, you could honestly, if you look at people now in an environment, you go public, this is the new self-symmetry behavior. Yes. We all do. Yeah. So it's kind of like it's important to make sure, and I always tell parents too in regards to things like computer games and TV and so on, just manage it so that the child has enough of a reward during the day but yet is able to do all the other things they need to do. Yeah. Very long answer, sorry. But great because I, I wanted people to hear you say that because I do think that this is some of the difference between good ABA and bad ABA because what I hear is, um, from from parents saying, well, they said they wanted to eliminate that, you know, this behavior, which I go, oh my gosh, you know, what what are yeah. we replacing it with? And and they're like, oh no, we're not replacing it with anything, and that's bad ABA. That's yeah. you know, saying, not looking at it from the point of view of this is happening for a reason. It's right. fulfilling a need. So what's it getting in the way of, first of all? Yep. Like, do we actually need to target this or not? Mm-hmm. Um, because if we don't, leave it alone. But if it's getting in the way of something, then how do we make it fair? You always say that's that. How do say. we make it fair? It has to be fair, yeah. Yeah. And that's a great way. Like, uh, that's a great litmus, t- litmus test. If it's not fair, it's not good ABA. Exactly. And, and Dr. Doreen said so. Absolutely. <laughs> and, and you have to just think about that, like, apply it to yourself, right? It's yes. like, if you were to go to work and work, you know, 100 hours a week and never get paid, because pay is our reward, right? Yeah. How long can you last? Yeah. So that's it wouldn't sort be of fair. the way, yeah. All right, we have to take a pause because we have a very important message that we want to bring to you guys. Uh, We've been uh, sharing this information. Uh, It's super important. I want you guys to take a look at this, and we'll be back right after this with more of your questions about the difference between live questions and the difference between good ABA and bad ABA. But take a look at this message. A recent study funded by the National Institute of Health suggests that there may be a higher risk of autism in children whose mother took the pain reliever acetaminophen during pregnancy. Acetaminophen is the active ingredient in scores of over-the-counter products, including Tylenol, Excedrin, and Robitussin. So if your child was diagnosed with autism and you took any acetaminophen product while pregnant, this commonly recommended over-the-counter medication may be responsible though additional research is ongoing. If you or a loved one used Tylenol or other medications containing acetaminophen while pregnant and later gave birth to a child diagnosed with autism, you may be entitled to financial compensation. Shapiro Legal Group is now evaluating potential legal claims by parents of autistic children. Call right now to see if you may be entitled to financial compensation. There are time deadlines to file a claim, so don't wait. You can reach Shapiro Legal Group at 888-657-0455. Again, that number is 888-657-0455. You can also contact Shapiro Legal Group by going to shapirolegalgroup.com forward slash autism.
Shapiro Legal Group, PLLC, associates with attorneys throughout the country to help people nationwide and is licensed in New York and Washington, D.C. and has its principal office at 60 East 42nd Street, New York, New York. This ad was read by a non-attorney spokesperson. Welcome back. Um, and thank you for sharing that information that we just shared with you. We've, many of you have written in and said that you've called in and good for you. And please share that information with anyone you think that is appropriate. I want to switch uh, back and forth here to some questions that we had that came in last week. Sure. Erica A., who I see is watching today, said, how do I approach, when we were talking about ABA last week, she said, how do I approach bad behavior to my child if he can't understand me? He's nonverbal. Mm-hmm. So... That's a really great, great uh, question. And fortunately, you don't really need to understand language in order to uh, change behavior. Um, Because behavior is uh, controlled by uh, the antecedents and consequences. So things that happen before it and things that happen after it. So essentially, the answer is you... When a bad behavior occurs, and you know, I don't know how you're defining a bad behavior, but something that's challenging to the child and to society, when something like that happens, then you can reduce it by making sure that a reward does not follow it. It's really that simple. And rewards don't have to be just like an object, or, uh, object that's tangible or food or something like that. Rewards can be uh, you know, avoiding an activity. Uh, rewards can be getting attention. Rewards can be uh, getting the actual object. Lots of different things, right? So as long as when the child does that particular behavior, no reward or no reinforcer follows it, then that behavior will just decrease. That's just the way it is. Now, unfortunately, a lot of times we think we have to Uh, you know, reprimand the child. That kind of stuff is actually attention. And a lot of times that does not work. So um, you start with each challenging behavior occurs for a different function, for a different reason in order to gain a different reward or reinforcer. So as a behaviorist, you have to start with trying to identify the function of that particular behavior that you're trying to change. So when your child does something that you're calling bad behavior, first ask yourself, if your child could communicate, how would they communicate why they're doing that? Are they doing it because you just asked them to do something and they're trying to avoid doing it? Are they doing that behavior because they don't want to comply with the demand you just placed? Are they doing it because they want to get out? They don't know how to ask for a break. Are they doing it because they want an object that somebody else has? What is the reason? And once you've identified the reason, then you make sure that challenging behavior doesn't give the child access to that particular thing that they were trying to gain. Instead, you teach the child to, let's say, touch an icon or, uh, you know, give you an icon, a picture of the thing that they wanted. And then that will get them access. But the challenging behavior will not give them access. Yeah. It's, I'll tell you what, it's one of those things that it takes a while to understand. It took, I'll, I'll be honest, it took me years to understand. It, simple ABA concepts, um, because you guys would say things to me, 
this is, we were talking about this yesterday. In fact, it was when my desk broke that I was talking about yeah. the difference between ignoring a behavior and ignoring a child and that behavior is communication. Oh, and yeah. that if we don't under, but, but see, you understand that completely because you're a really good clinician and you've worked in this field forever. But I, when we come in as parents, we don't understand that. The behavior right. is communication. Right. And that if we literally, we get all emotional about the behavior. Well, of course. And if we could separate and step back for a second and go, wait a second, what, is, what, it, what do I think my child is communicating to me? What you just said was, if my child had the ability to communicate, what would they say? What would they say? If we just looked at behavior that way yeah. and understood, okay, they're communicating something. And sometimes the communication is not, it's not effective communication, and we could make that communication more effective. And sometimes it's actually harming the individual. Yeah. Um, and, and so we should want to um, figure out what it is that they're saying. That's yeah. really the crux of this. So when people say that they don't like ABA, I go, oh my gosh, you're missing the big picture. Yeah. There's nothing that is more pro the individual than good ABA if you're really following good ABA. 100%, Shannon. And, you know, there's a second part to this. Like, you find out what the individual is trying to communicate, right? Yeah. And that's great. But what if that thing that they're trying to communicate or the way that they're doing it is, as you said, harmful to themselves yes. or to someone else? Yes. What if what yeah. that should happen? So, for instance, and you can apply this, by the way, because I'm seeing um, George is commenting about self-stimulatory behavior and saying yeah. the same thing. And you can apply this to any, any part of autism, to, to be honest, because this is one of the interesting things I always tell parents when I'm diagnosing autism. None of the challenging behaviors are part of the symptoms of autism. They're just a side effect yeah. because the individual cannot communicate in any other way. So they develop these, these behaviors, right? If I also could not communicate, I would probably, I mean, you go back in time before there was language, right? Yeah. And we'd hit the person and grab what they had because, hey, that's how I could that's communicate that I need to, to have that, right? Yeah. Whatever it was. And, and the same thing holds true for any, anything else. It doesn't matter the, for the individual. Now, remember, if I hit you because I want an object, right? Let's say there's two children. The child hits the other child and grabs the object. It's quite functional for me. It's right. very adaptive because it works. Right. Let's say I tantrum in a classroom and they take me outside. Hey, that really worked. It's wonderful. What else do I want? It's fabulous. Yeah. But it isn't functional or adaptive for society. It's not okay for the sibling. It's not okay for the thousands of moms that I've seen, including yourself, who have bruises and bites and so yeah. on and so forth. That's just not a way that this individual can go through life, right? Because if the person is hitting others or even self-stimulatory behavior, right? If they're all day long just doing self-stimulatory behaviors, they're not able to go to school, get a job, make friends, they'll be isolated, all these other things happen. So once you've identified the function and you understand what they're trying to say, Good ABA gives you a more adaptive way to get that need met. Whether it's a challenging behavior or it's a self-stimulatory behavior, it doesn't matter. I can also do, you know, a, an arts and crafts period of time where I am self-regulating by playing with finger paints and sand and or 
I can do a sensory diet where every five minutes I can put my hands in my pocket and there's some sort of fidget thing that I'm playing with, but I am still functioning in society. I am still, I'm not hitting others. I am not, you know, doing, I'm, I'm not exhibiting behaviors that are going to end up isolating me. Yeah. And that's the, the key. And, you know, I love Parker, as usual, always yes. has the best comments. I love it. And Parker is bringing up, I saw, um, he said that there's a lot of, a lot of self-advocates talk about how bad uh, ABA can, is for the individual, right? And I always say ABA is a choice. It's a choice that your parents make for you, and later it can be a choice for adults, and it is just a teaching technique, just like going to school is, right? Going to school is really no longer a choice. People go to school, you put your child in yeah. school. Child's not necessarily, most children have a hard time when they first start school. But they learn that in school, I can't run around. In school, when I want to ask a question, I have to do this. In school, I have to wait my turn. In school, I have to, you know, stand in line. In school, I can't interrupt others. There's a lot of stuff that you learn as well as the core academics that you're learning. And why do you learn those things? You learn those things so that you can participate and be part of society. And that's, it's the same thing, absolutely, with whether or not the child has autism or any other diagnosis. I am not okay with saying, I, just leave me alone. That's yeah. totally fine, but if your parent chose for you to interact with society while you're a child, ABA providers have to follow what your guardian suggests for you, which is do our best to teach you how to interact. When you're an adult, if you are functional, if you can hold down a job, if nobody else has to take care of you, that's really important, right? Because I could also say, I want to stay home. I, yeah. I don't want to do anything. I just want to stay home, hang yeah. out, watch TV. And, and somebody could come and, and, why are you guys trying to change me? Why are you trying to teach me that I need to work? Why is that? Yeah. It's the same exact thing here. We teach our most severely affected individuals with, let's say, Downs or other developmental disabilities to do something adaptive, functional, get a job. Because they, that way they can be part of society, they can be motivated, they can be rewarded, they can interact with others. And that's how, that's what life is. Yeah, that is what life is. And I always say to people, you know, it's funny because we're coming up on the 10th anniversary of, um, I, I know this because I'm about to turn 60, yeah, which is crazy, too, too. Uh, next month. And uh, I remember when it was my 50th birthday, yeah. um, friends had uh, a birthday party for me. And my son, was, it was 10 years ago, mm-hmm. and he was doing very well. But there were still some things, because we're all working on things, right? I'm working on things, right? There were some things that he was working on. And there were some aspects of just going into being around preteens that he, because he would have been uh, nine, uh, ten years ago. And so we were at this party and things had changed, where before they would all play in this room and there was a pile of toys. But now they were were, uh, preteens tweens and teens in the room and they were all on their computers and they were playing a game together and my son wanted to play in the worst way but he couldn't get his computer to connect 
with the Wi-Fi and, and it was this, you know, it was 10 years ago. It was yeah. harder back yeah. then than it yeah. is now. Yeah. So it was this exercise and frustration and he kept trying the whole party. And I was in the other room and I would come and check in and, and, he, was, and he was distraught. He, I can't get my computer. And he would say, can I borrow your computer? And the kids were like, no, I'm using my computer. Yeah. Yeah. So it ended up with him laying in the hallway of the foyer of the house on his stomach saying, what do I have to do to get them to play with me? Yeah. Yeah. And I, like, I said, we have to go home. We have to go home right now. Thank you so much, everybody. Goodbye. Because I could not watch my child be in that much pain. Mm-hmm. But I immediately, you know, he was done with ABA at that point. But I immediately called my team and I was like, what do I need to do? And they helped me troubleshoot through all the things. And we had like 22 play dates where he would connect his computer in different circumstances so that he would learn, what do I do? And, and sometimes we would have it so that he couldn't, and then to deal with the feelings and to communicate and find something else to do. Yep. Because he wanted connection. And I think that most people want, and, and we want it in different ways, mm-hmm. admittedly, but we want connection. And, and our dear departed Joanne Laura always used to say, Every, everyone deserves a seat at the table yeah. and that having a job and knowing that you matter and that yeah. you contribute is the single most important thing. And, and I remember there was a time when parents used to say, Oh, but my child's never going to be able to do that. And I have seen kids that are nonverbal considered the severest of the severe have a job and like change yeah. as a result of that. Yeah. Because they know that they are a part of things, that they're a part in their own way, not not trying to fit them to a mold or you must do it this way or you must. But how about you belong? Yeah. When we talk about inclusion, I, I think when we argue and say, whenever somebody is saying, well, that's how they are, don't try to change them. I know. That to me is don't teach them. Yeah. And that's, I'm opposed to that in every shape and form. Yeah. In any case. And, and, and you know, I, I want to say, because like right now, and I want to just thank some of our folks who are, yes, who are like handling this dialogue that's going on, because we do have someone on here who is adamantly refusing to listen. And entitled to their opinion. Uh, totally, and, totally, and, totally. And entitled to not listen. Absolutely. Um, and, but I, and I see that so many other yeah. folks are trying to get them to listen. But you guys, it doesn't matter because the, in society, there are always folks who resist change. Yes. And there are always folks who want change. And that's just society, right? I mean, like, we, we grow and we learn yeah. or we don't. And we remain and we dig our heels in and we say, everybody around me has to change to adapt to me. Yeah. Or there are others who say, no, I'm going to adapt to society. Yeah. You know, as you know, I have a, a, a dear friend who is on the spectrum who's my neighbor. Yes. And I love watching him because he just boldly goes out there and yeah. is constantly changing and constantly learning new things. You know, I, I love things like he'll just come to one of my parties and he'll go around and interact with people and he does his absolute best to continue to interact in one way or another, right? Yeah. But that's because he is learning all the time. Yeah. 
he's learning how to stand on the corner and catch the bus. He's learning how to go to a job and come back. He's learning how to adapt to other people. He's not, you know, spending his entire day at home self-symmetry. And believe me, he has some need for self-symmetry. I'm sure he engages yeah. just like all of us do in yep. some of our own self-symmetry behaviors. But the truth is, uh, my dad used to say one of the things you learn in life is to how to uh, moderate everything to the, to the medium, right? No extremes. And that's really what it is. It's like learning how much of each thing can you engage in each day yeah. in order to continue to still be part of society. There you go. Amazing. I, I want to address, because last week Erica A. wrote in a bunch of different things uh, about difficulties that she's having across the board with her child, single parent, finding it hard to find a daycare. Yeah. Um, school is not helping. The school district is just uh, a mess and at one point took him to the wrong place. Oh, my gosh. Um, yeah, I, which I, I can't even deal with. Um, but says that he chews on everything, every cord or lace he sees. He takes his shoes and uh, takes his shoes and clothes all the time. I don't know what to do. Yeah. So I want to address that. Um, and and she says that he's got some pretty big challenges and is nonverbal. Yeah, and that's kind of like you know no, I, there's like my heart really goes out to individuals who are dealing with their children who are more severely affected because. The, the folks who say, oh, just leave it alone, yeah, you know, hard. don't really understand how hard it is when your child is is uh, having difficulty and, and like chewing everything and, yeah. and just like not able to, to function, right? Yeah. So there are certain things that can be done in this case. I, it, it really disturbs me because we spend so much, our kids spend so much time in school and when you have a school uh, district or program that just doesn't want to interact or engage or do the right thing, I think it always starts there. I mean, I'm happy to, I will tell you, there are things you can do. Like, definitely, if your child is chewing objects or clothes or whatever it is, there's a variety of things you should do. You should actually, first of all, again, uh, get some medical testing done to see what if any types of, uh, you know, uh, hormones, enzymes, supplements can help with anything that could be lacking. So first of all, do a test, make sure your child is doing fine and, and you know, not weak on any kind of their, their biochemistry. That's one thing. But then to, and then there are children who also really, really crave that kind of pressure that they want. So I'm not sure if it's just clothes or other objects Cords as well. especially. Cords. So sometimes it's just about chewing something, right? Yeah. And we've actually had a very, a lot of success replacing that with just chewing. And yeah. what's an adaptive form of chewing is chewing gum. Yeah. And so we have actually, we even published on this where you will teach a child how to chew gum and it replaces the need to chew other non-edible objects. Um, again, there's another thing I want to make sure I don't forget to say is that chewing is one thing. Chewing and swallowing is pica. And if that's the case, you really need to deal with this very fast because yeah. we could be eating things that are very harmful into our intestines as well. But in any case, chewing on its own, you can replace, you can actually put, if it's specific objects like the shirt, for instance, there is uh, the stuff that we give our kids for not chewing their nails. 
and you can just put it on the shirt and it's bitter. Yeah. And so when the individual goes to chew on their shirt, they will stop. And I've seen this be a really big problem because the shirt gets completely wet. Yeah. And I've seen that with children. In fact, they often, like it becomes germs and it becomes quite an issue for the parent. So when you do that, make sure that you have other objects, which nowadays you can buy a lot of different things that are for uh, infants or young children who have a need for chewing, chewy objects, uh, nook types of uh, vibrators for inside Mm -hmm. the mouth. There are things that give that oral stimulation, but, you know, it's not the child's shirt or cords or other objects. So that's kind of how to deal with it. But more importantly, I think you need to get your school involved. If it's not happening, call for an IEP, take an advocate with you or an attorney or another parent who's had success. Make sure, read your child's rights. Your child has rights. The school needs to provide them an individual who is trained in in these techniques um, as well as a resource specialist, someone who can really give guidance to all the teachers and aides and make accommodations in school so that your child can, all of these behaviors are dealt with consistently. So I think you need to kind of do both. In fact, on Thursday, we're doing a special show because you guys asked for this. We did a show about autism in school last week, and you guys, it was like, oh. And the question you guys asked the most is how to get a one-on-one aid. And so we're doing a whole show on Thursday about how to get an aid, but not only that, once you have it, how to use it well. Yeah. um, And make sure that you're getting the right thing for that. That's Thursday's show. So just letting you guys know that. I want to address, uh, Luispa has written in, wrote in last week and said, hello, ladies, my daughter is 21 months old and she's drooling so much. What can this uh, might be? She wants us to know that OT and speech therapists are working on low oral muscle tone, Mm -hmm. but I would like to know what is happening. She says she only eats natural homemade meals without gluten, sugar, soy, or dairy. 21 months, so we're still pretty young there. And, And they did testing? Well, they have OT and speech, so that would apply to me that that there has been some testing. But do you mean medical testing? To, how do they know that they need to take the child off of these things? Oh, I don't know. Right. So at 21 months is really, really young. I would make sure that you do testing, right, uh, to determine if you actually need to do modified diet at this point before you start doing that because... And that was their question, right? How no, well, the I question do... is the drooling, how to deal with the drooling. Oh, I see. But how, could you reread it, Shannon? Yeah. I'm sorry, I missed She the... says, hello, ladies. My daughter is 21 months old, yeah. and she's drooling so much. What can this maybe be? She says, OT, OT and speech therapists are working on low muscle, uh, oral muscle yeah. tone. Yeah. But I would like to know what's happening. And she gives us uh, other information. She only eats natural homemade meals without gluten, sugar, soy, or dairy. I see. I see. Okay. Well, so to begin with, I... Um, it. It could be apraxia, which is the low muscle tone in mm. the tongue. A lot of our kids don't actually verbalize or vocalize because of that. And certainly, not just the speech and OT, but you can also obviously be doing a lot of the oral motor exercises to strengthen that. But I would also really get with one of the MedMaps doctors 
and uh, do some organic acid metabolites, look at some uh, biochemical testing to make sure that there's no imbalance there that is causing this. That's, again, it's one of the things that I see often. It's like sometimes a child will drool so much that their entire shirt is completely wet from the drooling. And yeah, that's very, very important. Another thing, by the way, that I sometimes with my kids who drool is that they don't close their mouth. If you can teach the child to close their mouth that and swallow, that often helps with the drooling as well, right? So let's start with, and 21 months, you probably don't have anything other than the speech and OT, but once you, you could perhaps talk to the speech pathologist about helping you teach the child how to just keep their mouth closed and breathe through their nose. This is a really important thing. When we're babies, infants, we don't know this yet, but by two, it starts to occur. And I would really, really start working on the muscle tone as well, pretty intensively. And Amanda wrote in and said, Shannon, please make sure and tell this parent to do genetic testing. Okay. Um, so... Oh. Yeah, she might be worried about Rett syndrome, which also has does have a lot of mouth and drooling occurring. Okay, uh, fascinating. There's so many pockets to different things and, and things to consider here. Um, I also, uh, and she said lab testing, so, so important. Um, there's so many things being said, and so I'm picketing and choosing. But there was something very specific, and I had my eye on it, and then I scrolled, uh, so I messed up. Uh, Okay. Oh, uh, also, Erica says my child is five and all he wants to eat is, is nuggets and fries yeah. and only certain foods. I've tried other foods, but he won't eat it. And yeah. I know that this is a particular area of expertise for you. Yeah. Well, I mean, feeding therapy is a big part of what we do with ABA. And, uh, you know, again, I don't, this is one of those where, I mean, I've had children who were so restrictive, here's another example of why sometimes ABA is necessary, right? If a child just refuses to eat and they end up on a gastro tube and are not able to survive, then we, ha we use ABA techniques to teach them to swallow and chew and eat foods. And again, it's something that, you know, it, the child doesn't necessarily want to do because they're very particular to the type of, they don't like the sensation of chewing, they don't like the sensation of putting food objects in their mouth, but we gradually teach feeding skills. Now, feeding skills are, their food in particular is a very, very potent uh, stimulus, and it can have a very strong positive effect, but also a very strong negative effect. So. It's one of those things that it's better if you have an expert working with you when you're doing feeding therapy because you don't want to make mistakes. But I'll just quickly tell you kind of how it works. You start with getting a baseline of anything the child is able to ingest. Because sometimes children will, for instance, I've had a child, I had a child who would only eat perfectly shaped Cheerios. There are many children who only eat things that are breaded, let's yeah. say, or only eat things that are sugar. Or, or white. Or white, or whatever it is. Yeah. And they've generalized to that particular thing. And I think, honestly, I used to do a lecture on, on food issues, and I, I often think that it's the, it is just an overgeneralization that occurs. So, for instance, 
you eat something, just think of ourselves as, as neurotypical adults, right? Yeah. As neurotypical as we can be. Right. You go out there and you eat, let's say I'll eat, and this happens all the time now with all of us, you guys. Like you'll go and eat something that has gluten and you'll be bloated and uncomfortable and you go home and you're like, what was that? I'm never going to eat that again. And so you then realize, hmm, I was at a Mexican restaurant. Maybe it's just Mexican food in general. So now there's like a million things that are classified under Mexican food and you don't eat them. Okay. But with children, they don't know those classifications that we do as adults. They know them by color or by texture. So it's kind of like if a child has a tummy ache after they ate something that was, let's say, rice pudding, they might generalize that to everything that's white. I'm not going to eat from now on. And so they become very food restricted. On the other hand, we also tend to crave things that we are allergic to, as you know, because when we break that particular food down, we don't break it down all the way to amino acids. It is often in the form, remains in the form of peptides, things that we're not able to break down. And the peptides then do all kinds of mischief and make us feel as if we are on endorphins, right? They give that same sensation. So they kind of make us feel a little bit loopy and kids might be eating. It's the opiate effect. They literally call it the opiate effect. Exactly. So you need to teach your child to eat the appropriate things. I'm not saying teach every three-year-old to eat every vegetable that exists, but you need to have a broad enough array of things. And the way that it starts is you get a baseline and you realize, what are, is it a, a taste that they're aversive to? Is it a texture? Because a lot of times you'll see kids will love things that are crunchy but won't eat things that are soft. Or the other way around. They'll eat things that are soft, but they don't know how to chew. You have to, that's why I'm kind of saying it's good to work with someone who's done feeding therapy. A lot of speech therapists, by the way, have done feeding therapy, and a lot of BCBAs have as well. And so once you identify, are you going to be increasing texture? Are you going to be increasing uh, or varying color? Are you going to be increasing uh, from things that are mushy to things that are chewable? You know, what are you changing? You do a very, very long schedule, so that it's a very gradual change, right? Sometimes I've started with a child just putting one spoon of, let's say, you know, a tiny bit of mashed potatoes in their mouth, and then they get to eat whatever else that they want. And then it becomes two teaspoons of the mashed potatoes, and they get to eat whatever they want. Or... Another way that we do it is, let's say, we'll have the child put a tiny bit of what they don't want to eat and turn on the TV and let them watch a program they like, but turn the TV off, ask them to do one more spoon, turn the TV back on. So it's this continuous uh, small steps that are heavily rewarded until the child gets to a point that they're used to that particular stimulus, whatever it is, uh, whether it's a taste or a color or shape or whatever. And then you gradually increase those things. And it takes a while. It takes a little time to get to what we would classify as a normal diet. But you can do it. And I really do also recommend that if you're doing this, talk to a nutritionist. The best team to do this would be to have a speech bath and a nutritionist, BCBA, helping you with this. Because 
the nutritionist will tell you what things to introduce and what things not to introduce. Because yeah. let's face it, I mean, if I was going to go back and teach my kids, I would try to prevent them from getting so comfortable with sugar, yeah. you know. And from the very beginning, I'd get them uh, to eat a lot of, let's say, vegetables or whatever yeah. it is. Do you know that's one of the biggest feedbacks I've gotten from my book is that I'm a terrible parent that I didn't allow my son to have Halloween candy. Yeah. Like people are just like, you know, horrified. they have a horrified. They're like, somebody actually said, a dear, dear friend who I love said to my son, my God, your mom is so mean. She's so cruel. She didn't let you have Halloween candy. And this is, this is an autism mom that I love. And I was like, you know, he can have candy now. He is 19 years old, and he makes his own decisions, and he chooses. And every once in a while, it's usually around this time of year where, you know, it's back to school, and it's right before Halloween, and he'll be like, you know, I think I'd like to have yeah. some Skittles. And I go, let's get you some Skittles. Yeah. You know, let's, and so he'll get one of those little bags of Skittles, and he'll have like three Skittles, and then it sits on his desk for a month. Yeah, and then and I go, are, you know, have you had any more of that? And he's like, nah, I had two pieces. He, it's the craziest thing. And everybody who's around him, they're like, you don't crave sugar? And he's yeah. like, every once in a while, we went to Disneyland, and he he couldn't wait. We'd never been to the Star Wars land, and he, we'd been waiting all through COVID to have the blue milk or the green milk. Oh yeah. And he was so excited to have the and you know and, I, and we got him a big one, and he drank about half of it, and he was like. Oh my gosh, it's so it's so That's sugary. So and he was like, I, and he couldn't eat sugar for like a week. He he, I would offer him something he loved, and he was like, Nah, I just can't. I, that was the experience I had with the with the Harry Potter the potions or something. Oh, the butter beer. The butter beer. I was oh. like dying to have one, and right. I swear I had that much, and I was like, Yeah, good God, the sugar amounts in here, yeah. Yeah. So you know, he has a he, he has the most functional relationship with sugar and food honestly. of anyone I have ever met. Honestly. And and if you read my book, we didn't we didn't just take away the sugar from him. He got a replacement. Yeah. He got to go Halloween, uh, you know, trick or treating. And then the Lego fairy, he would put all of his candy in the middle of the table, and the Lego fairy would come in the middle of the night and take it and give him a really big Lego. He was happy. Yeah. He didn't feel like yeah. he was missing out at all, and now he has this great, great relationship I, with sugar. It's one of the only good things I did, and yet it's the thing that people are the most patootsed about. I think it's spectacular. Honestly, like with my, with my youngest, with Charlie, when she was little, I would sometimes have to take things. I was worried she's going to develop diabetes. Yeah. She was eating so much sugar, you know? And I wonder, I wish someone had done that for me. Yeah. Because you, sooner or later, whether you uh, learn to regulate, and this goes back to what I said before, which is always like middle. You can't go extreme either direction, right? Yeah. When you get to the point where you can regulate, it's going to either be when you're a child or, or later on you're going to have to learn it. Like it just is. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, <laughs> there, and there, there are many different butterbeers. I've never tried the butterbeer because I, I have to be totally off, to sh off of sugar yeah. in my life right now. But Amanda says, that's what happens when you don't have sugar. Now that we've changed our diet, my daughter couldn't even finish her birthday cake. This is not a bad way to be. We, society has normalized having kids ha be like shocked yeah. with sugar. Yeah. Shocked with sugar. When I was a kid, you know, we didn't have sugar throughout the day, but we had dessert every single night. Yeah. 
which I now think I'm like, you know, my dad, we would eat dinner. My dad would go, well, what's for dessert? Yeah. And there would be a new dessert. And I think that's shocking. It is. Now, that's crazy to me. Yes, There's yes. dessert every, every night. Day. But people have dessert for breakfast now. People that's have true. dessert for lunch. That's true. Kids, when I was a school teacher and the kids would come in and, they, and, and, you know, I'd have tutoring during lunch. And they would come in with their lunch and it would be a bag of hot Cheetos oh. and, a, and a Diet Coke. Oh. And I remember going to one of the parent-teacher conferences, and I said, can we talk about their diet? And, and I was told that I was not allowed to yeah. as a teacher. Yeah. Uh, the thing that people, things that people subsist on, yeah. um, yep. just crazy to me. Anyway, we're out of time. We're totally out of time. But I have enjoyed this conversation. I want to say one thing, that um, this is a safe space where everybody can say whatever they want and, and you know, and I, and I want to make sure that everybody feels welcome. I appreciate the discourse. I think that's hard sometimes. But if you were part of a conversation that was happening, I just want to remind you that you are okay. You are okay. And that we don't always have to agree with everybody. Um, and it's, it's okay to let other people have other opinions. And both Absolutely. of us are, are fine with people. If you totally. don't like what we're doing, as it's okay. As long as it doesn't become insulting to each other. That's important. Like, I think that's really important. And sometimes with our neurodiverse population that joins the dialogue, they misunderstand and they are so angry. There's so much internal anger that they begin to uh, kind of have more of an attack towards some of our other view viewers. Yes. And I don't want that to happen because this is not the space for that. No, we Everybody don't want that. Everybody has the right to comment. And, you know, I'll be honest, once you've commented once, we know you don't have to comment 400 times. Yes. We kind of know where you stand. But, um, you know, but allow others to have a voice. I think that is very important. Allow other people... If you are a neurodiverse person who does not appreciate ABA, that's okay. That is absolutely your right. Allow parents or other individuals who do appreciate ABA to also have a voice. Absolutely. But I also want to acknowledge that the person uh, that, you know, in question here said, I, I don't agree with ABA, but I personally would like more support in my life. Yeah. And I want you to know that I heard that. And I, in a conversation with my dear friend Alex Plank last week, he said, you know what, I just wish, he said, I, I know, Shannon, when you talk about good ABA, I know you're talking about something different, but, you know, if you guys were smart, you would just change because ABA is very, the, the, is the, the lettering is triggering it to triggers us and people. we don't see past that yes. to the support that you're That's offering. Right. And so That's you should right. just change the name. Absolutely. And I heard that. I heard that. And I heard that today. Yeah, that in that, fact, in fact, it's funny that you say that because ABA used to be called behavior modification. Well, let's come up with a and new name. And the name change was in order because people were reactive to having their behavior modified. You know? So, yeah. So, uh, George, I appreciate what you said. I'm happy that you recognize that you want support. Good ABA is a kind of support. You don't have to have ABA. You can have any other type of support. And absolutely, that is everybody's choice. But so thrilled that you're all here and all a part of the conversation. That's so meaningful to both of us. So um, tomorrow, uh, this is going to make you break out into hives. Tomorrow we're doing a parent-to-parent -parent talk about aggression. Ooh. I, I should really make you come in so that, that it's not parent-to-parent. So -parent. But we're talking about aggression tomorrow. And then on Thursday, we're talking about how to get a school aid and keep it. And, uh, and then Friday is stories from the spectrum. So stay tuned. We're glad that you're here. Until then, give your kiddos a hug from me and one for you too.
Bye-bye, everyone. Thank you. Bye-bye. Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around. A watch she can wear every day for movement. Whether mom's into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, movement has something she'll love. And right now, you can save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with up to 50% off site-wide during Movement's Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com.